Well, I'm absolutely delighted to have with me today, Ellen from Waterbear. Welcome. Thank you, Raphael. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm actually a massive fan of Waterbear. I've been enjoying it and we will get really stuck into what exactly Waterbear is for all our listeners. But first, I'd like to start a little bit with how you got into TV entertainment, shall we say, post-college or, or university. How did, how did that come about? Very good question. I went to Brown University. I'd grown up in Germany and the UK and then decided to go to college in the States. Went to Brown because I was always a generalist. And the only thing that really characterized me was that I was interested in everything. I remember graduating thinking, what the hell am I going to do? I'm a generalist um, and I just can't think of what to study. So what I thought was I love communication and I speak five languages. So I thought I love communicating with different countries. So the best way uh, to do that is media, that it was mm -hmm. literally as simple as that. And I then went to New York, which is close to uh, Providence where I graduated. And I spent 10 years doing that. I, I just went into media, I took any job I could. Mm -hmm. And I found that a really wonderful place for me was documentary filmmaking. That's really how I started. And then after a few years of New York, I moved to Amsterdam in, I believe, something crazy like 1990 um, oh. and started working here for a Canadian media company and started my own company in 1994. So you graduated. I mean, I think one of the challenges when you're young is everyone says, so what do you want to be when you grow up? Right. <laughs> and, uh, and if you're a generalist or if you're just, you know, taking your time to actually understand your place in the universe, that's kind of a bit intimidating. But so you gravitated towards media just because of the communications aspect. And uh, yes. was there was there any kind of seminal things that you you watched or saw that you kind of thought oh wow I really want to be involved in this or it was just purely organic well I was fascinated when uh people this is so long ago but I was fascinated when people started the, the discovery channel oh, okay. I thought this is a great place for curious people mm -hmm. where are you know where's a good place for curious people and I realized I'm mainly driven by curiosity I have two really big drivers one is probably the biggest. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs will share that. Um, I have a strong need for freedom, uh, creative freedom and material freedom. And the other need is uh, I, I really feel I need authentic ways to satisfy my curiosity. Um, and that goes beyond, you know, the news or beyond all these kind of YouTube tunnels you can walk down. So that really preempted my starting my own documentary company in 1994. Wow. Okay. So what was the, what were the early years like in terms of you're working for somebody else, you're starting to get experience. What, what, what kind of roles are you doing in media? Because I think we all know, like we see actors, that's very familiar. We understand what they do. We understand mm -hmm. directors kind of, uh, you know, tell them what to do. And then you've got all these kind of other roles that you see on the, on the credits and producers. Yeah. I, I actually, you know, I don't really understand the difference between a producer and exec producer. So, you know, like yeah. what are all these roles and, and what do they mean? And, and how, where were you in the kind of food chain of, of entertainment at that time? Well, the first thing I was is I was a young woman in the 80s and that was not easy in media. So mm -hmm. a lot of young women in the 80s in New York had to work for media companies in jobs where they did production research or sales of finished programming or pre-sales. And our main job was to make our male bosses look good. 
and to create deals that made our male bosses appear in the headlines on Variety. So I did a fair amount of that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really why I would sort of say to all female entrepreneurs that may be listening to this, I hope you will be able to skip that step. It is a mm -hmm. very uncomfortable place for a young woman uh, to have to do that. But at the same time, I found that it honed very good negotiation skills. So um, I learned how to park my ego at the door. I learned how to work on outcome. And I think later going into impact of filmmaking, which I'm now in, I think that's a skill that, that I picked up during that time and that I was able to, to use later on. The difference between, I mean, what I did, again, as a woman in that early time where it was very difficult to specialize in media early, I used to buy documentaries and films for a company. I used to sell documentaries and films for a company. And I used to co-finance them, which means I learned how to finance co-productions, how to put different broadcasters together uh, to get them all together to make one film. My record was I had nine broadcasters in one documentary once when I was very young. What? <laughs> um, so, um, these are all really good skills and they really led me to then say well I'm going to start a company that does international distribution of finished films mm -hmm. as well as packaging co-financing documentaries as well as producing documentaries I decided to be uh, you know to really fulfill my my generalist fate and do all three because I can do all three. And actually lots of people can do all three. So I had a company called Off the Fence that sold documentaries all over the world. We had about 3000 buyers in television. This is pre-digital, of course. We co-financed with about 40 different broadcasters, different projects. And we also had a production department that was uh, eventually run by maybe my best friend in the world, Alison Bean. Um, and we built the production arm of that company together. You've touched on a few things there. Uh, do you think the industry has got better, first of all, from a female like entering the industry at this time? I think of media actually as being less male dominated uh, as than, say, finance or tech or some other places. But, but um, yeah. I, you always have to check like the distribution of the power, really, isn't it? It's not just like whether it's 50-50 yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So is it still I, all men at the top? Yeah. or? Honestly? I would say, Raphael, it's two things. One is uh, it depends on where you are. There are, you know, I had an office in Singapore for 10 years and I found that in that area uh, of the world, media is just not as highly regarded as a job in banking, for instance. Mm -hmm. So I think that geographically, you have to see how well supported is the media industry in the area where you live. And then the second thing to look at is indeed uh, the, the, the male-female issue, and that is a, a geographical one. But even if you're in media in the United States, I promise you there is a glass ceiling. Mm. Uh, and it is not fun uh, for women to break that glass ceiling in the United States, which is one of the most progressive places to, to, to work in media in the world. So did you start off the fence because you felt that you weren't going to progress? Or was that one of the main reasons that you, you ventured into <laughs> entrepreneurship yourself? Yes. I was tired of making men look good. Yeah. Um, I felt that men need to go and make themselves look good and, and work a little bit harder. At least the generation of men I worked for is, of course, a generation of men that did not work as hard as men do nowadays, like not even a fraction. The men I worked for couldn't type, Raphael. Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> 
So there we are, writing all of their memos and you yeah. know, writing all of their speeches and things. It was my need for, for creative freedom that drove me to say, I'm just gonna start a company myself with one assistant and we're going to do production and we're gonna do distribution and we're just gonna slowly organically grow it and make sure we understand the entire food chain. Presumably, I mean, was it like a Jerry Maguire moment? Were you like standing up in the office asking who's joining me kind of thing? Or, uh, I mean, you had the relationships, I assume, at this time with the the networks yes. and the people that yeah. kind of, you know, you've, you've built all that rapport and, okay, the credit was going yeah. elsewhere, but those relationships were critical, I'd imagine, to to starting your own venture, feeling, having that confidence that you could actually uh, do this yourself. Yes, I, I think there was a Jerry Maguire moment because I was also pregnant with my first child and I had one room office and I had an assistant and I just said, I love documentaries and I'm just going to do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's the commitment because there's no going back, as you know, once you, no. uh, once you take that there's route. There's no going back. There's just, that was going to be it. And it was tremendously fun. It was very rewarding, uh, great fun, wonderful people in the industry. I went into natural history, of course, which yeah. was my favorite thing and it still really is my favorite subject you know everything i can do on biodiversity and climate is still my favorite subject i think it's wonderful and there are fantastic people in that industry that uh really have become my friends for life moving into natural uh, natural history at that time was it i mean obviously you've got attenborough's body of work and all of these kind of things but he, he you know there's a lot of i guess traditional people in that space um yeah. was it a vibrant, a vibrant opportunity, though, for I mean, I, I see entertainment, yeah. everybody's kind of going after like the middle ground and, and natural history is just like a, a very small niche in, in, in what is already considered a niche, I guess, in documentaries. So, yes. so was and, it a, you know, a big gamble? I think it was, especially at that time, of course, there was the BBC and Attenborough mm. and everybody outside of the BBC and Attenborough was a bit riffraff. And uh, but what I did was I anticipated that the natural history market would grow. The other thing that was happening, Nelson Mandela had been released from jail and South Africa has one of the most beautiful landscapes and biodiversity in the world. So I actually went into South Africa and started working with young filmmakers there on really deeply uh, entrenching in their backyard and saying you don't need to tolerate 40 headed teams from Great Britain to come over and film your neighborhood mm -hmm. film your own species film your own natural world let's do it together and that's actually how I built the business wow so at that time you're saying um, sort of natural history was almost like you know people with big budgets traveling with the whole team and then they go and 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 the cameraman is is coming from the uk are you saying like for bbc yeah. for example to film yes or you know, there was at the time there was there was national geographic and bbc they were dominating mm -hmm. the industry but that is so long ago Raphael, because mm -hmm. it has now become a, a really burgeoning business with lots and lots of channels uh, and lots of broadcasters being heavily invested in natural history. And I, therefore, that's why I went into the, the additional niche, which is uh, this entire impact business. Yeah. Um, and that's where I think production has become really uh, important. One thing is an exec producer is like the general manager of a film. I think you asked me this earlier. So an exec producer is like the general manager of a film. They work on the development, the writing, 
the financing, and then they oversee the shooting, and then they get involved generally quite intensely in the post-production. That's what an exec producer does, but a producer is someone who tends to be more in the field and they deal with all the equipment and if you have to work with talent and all the agreements and they go on location more often than the executive producer. So mm -hmm. they are more of the, if an exec producer is maybe the CEO of a production, then the producer is the GM of a production, but a producer can also be quite intensely involved creatively and within what producers do you also have producers that are more logistical in documentaries mm -hmm. but also producer directors who are both and who are very very creative especially in uh, uh impact documentary the specialism or the kind of angle that off the fence took was that unusual at the time because you weren't just distribution which i think your was your predominant background but this yeah. production side as well and, and the combination of things was that was that common at the time it wasn't that's what i find so surprising right now when you look at the landscape right now it wasn't very common to do that in you know even in the year 2000 but it for me was a, a very important ecosystem to build you know you the best business you can build is a business that imitates the rules of nature. So I realized a healthy ecosystem is uh, very helpful when you're building up a small indie, which mm -hmm. I was in Amsterdam. I wasn't in Bristol or in London, right? I was in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. But the distribution revenue fed my development budget and my development fed into production and production then again fed into distribution. It made our catalog uh, worth much more to have beautiful self-produced films in the company and then we just basically broadened out at one point we had eight offices all over the world including one in singapore mm -hmm. uh, we had one in la one in new york we had one in Mainz in germany we right. had one in cape town so uh, a few other places london so we literally uh spanned the globe in just wanting to intensify our indie connections with the indie filmmaking world in documentaries, and it really paid off. And those those businesses interlink and they kind of support each other, I assume, to some degree. They so do. it's kind of, yeah. uh, and now we see that it's kind of normal with Netflix and although they're obviously broadcasters or OTT, however we want to describe them, but they're, they also seem to be differentiating through their own productions, right? Yes, I think everybody does. And, you know, that's really the, the, the realm of streamers. Um, is really the new business that came, but but the old businesses that were bigger versions or smaller versions of my company off the fence mm -hmm. would be uh, people like All Three Media or mm -hmm. ZDF Studios or really any uh, any grouping like that because they they tend to pair production with distribution. Mm -hmm. um, and if they are a large distribution company that doesn't have their own production companies, they buy them. Right. So that's definitely become linked. And, and on the streamer side, that's a whole new world. Streamers, of course, are not as old as I am, for instance, um, or as my business off the fence, which is, I believe, about 30 years old now. I did that oh, wow. 30 years. Streamers started very early on calling themselves, I guess, SVOD, um, which is standard video on demand. But it's a service like Netflix that you have to pay for and mm -hmm. you pay because they want you to cut the cord that that this they started very early on to say, 
as a differentiator and to get people to cut the cord watching conventional television, we have to have original productions and we have to own all of our films and series exclusively. Okay. That is a big gamble, of course, and you can see that in the headlines now mm. that other streamers have joined Netflix in the fray. They're all suffering because they spent a massive amount of money on original productions. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't produce in-house. They have production teams that oversee independent producers. So they're not a production company, okay. um, but they have people that oversee original productions and they have of course, departments that finance entire original productions. But it is a big gamble. And you can see in the, 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 the prices, I guess the stock price of Netflix has fallen because they're finding it really hard to recoup all of their investments in original programming. Yeah, and, and a small dip in subscribers, you know, relatively speaking, 0.1%, I think it was, or something like that, equated to like almost a quarter off the, off the, off the price, which is quite yeah. you know, striking. Yeah. But I guess not a problem uh, for for you guys because your model is is slightly slightly different. But before I come on to to that, one of the hits I would say on Netflix, or certainly for me, was um, my Octopus Teacher. Which, um, if you haven't seen it, you probably and you like natural history. In fact, you don't even need to love natural history. I just think it's an unbelievable story. It's a love story, really. Well, from to me, I think it's a love story. It's about reconnection with nature. There's kind of a father son thing there as well, and. It's a guy uh, based in South Africa who lives in Cape Town who I've subsequently found out you've worked with before because when I watched it, I was just like, this is so fantastic. I wanted to see his other yeah. stuff. And you're, yeah. you've, you've been a producer with him 20 years ago on a, on a, um, on a Bush, um, yep. Bushman kind of um, uh, documentary. Right. Yep. So, so tell me a bit like, I'm, and I should say actually, it's won an Oscar as well. It's won a BAFTA, I think, and an Oscar. It's, it's yep. that good. Yeah. So it's how did you how did you get involved? I mean, obviously you knew um, Craig back then, but how did you you first get involved in 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 that production? Well, it goes indeed. It goes way back to when I was working with young talented filmmakers in South Africa, uh, building my business off the fence. And Craig was one of the most talented people I've ever met, even then. As you know, I guess he was then a you know a thirty year old man. We worked together on a film called The Great Dance, which won 65 awards. It was a sort of sleeper and it disrupted natural history filmmaking because we used types of filmmaking that people hadn't used before. We filmed from perspectives that people hadn't filmed from before. And we went deeply into the psyche of Bushmen and into their indigenous, very, very wise relationship with nature. That's really what the film was about. Even then that interested Craig very much. And it interested me very much, you know, what are really the origins of our connection with nature and how can we feel reconnected to where we all come from um, and what we all have in common. And the film did that, did raise a lot of eyebrows because we won a ton of awards, whereas we were sort of nobodies, right? We were <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Um, and we, we stayed very close friends after that. And we worked together on and off on a few projects. While I was building off the fence, Craig became a very, very well-known cinematographer. He worked with Attenborough. He worked with Discovery. He worked for National Geographic. He worked kind of for everybody. But in the throughs of that, he got a really bad case of adrenal fatigue. And that adrenal fatigue came from what I think, you know, being pushed into having to film lots of very dangerous situations with animals, including uh, holding a large 3D camera 
and having to dive into caves under the surface of the Okavango to film sleeping crocodiles from two meters away. Oh and I, I saw Craig and he, I don't know if you've ever uh, experienced adrenal fatigue or met someone with adrenal fatigue, but you literally can't move. You know, he was in a chair and he just literally couldn't move. And we just started talking. And as he started swimming in this cold water, you know, in this place where he was born, he discovered that cold swimming is fantastic for your nervous system. Uh, and he rebooted his nervous system and started filming these beautiful little creatures on the kelp forest floor. Uh, was joined by Pippa Ehrlich, the, the, the very talented woman who directed the film. And we would just sit and, and look and say, what shall we do with this? What shall we do with this? So the funny thing is that two things happened. One thing is when I saw these beautiful little clips, I thought, I can't sell this to any conventional streamer or channel, but this is such an important subject matter, biodiversity and the human relationship with nature. I literally said to Craig, I think we need our own network. So that's how the idea <laughs> of the Water Bear Network was born. Oh, wow. So on the one hand, I was thinking, we need our own network. We really have to have a network where the length of a film doesn't matter, but, but where purpose really matters and okay. intent really matters. And the other thing that happened is Craig met a baby octopus. And yeah. once he yeah. met that baby octopus, Pippa and I sort of said, well, there's a film there. And so they just kept on filming and we carried on with that. And we, uh, I took the project to Netflix when it was uh, quite far along. It was mm -hmm. almost fully shot. And they then agreed to help us finish it and make it a Netflix original. I mean, I, so it's so amazing in, in terms of thinking you've got all these projects or things happening simultaneously, I would guess that you're kind of keeping some sort of oversight on and, um, <laughs> <laughs> because like without the octopus, my octopus teacher is just Craig swimming around uh, in very cold water. So that's, that's kind of crazy. Tell me, um, like what point, at what point did you feel, did you feel that was a hit when you kind of, at what point did you feel this is something really special? Well, interestingly, I felt that this film is the kind of, the kind of culmination of a 25 year friendship with Craig. I thought this is the best thing he and I could possibly do together because it encompasses everything we care about. Mm -hmm. um, and so I knew, even while I was being turned down by BBC and National Geographic and Smithsonian and, you know, you name it, we were turned down. Really? Um, because people said, Ellen, come on, you know, a guy and an octopus, who's going to want to see that? Yeah. So we were very lucky that uh, Sarah Edelson, the commissioning editor at Netflix, saw something in the film. She sort of said, you know what? I think you've really got something there. It was she and actually a dear friend of mine at Arte uh, in Germany that, that there were two commissioning editors that saw it and the rest of them said, it won't get ratings. We're not going to be happy with the advertising revenues. But I knew and Craig knew that this was a very, very important film. And I thought it's going to find its way. So we were absolutely positive, as was Pippa, mm -hmm. um, that this film would find its way. That's amazing faith. The thing is, when you're a documentary filmmaker and you're telling the truth about our relationship with nature, when you're mm -hmm. filming it technically super well, when you're discovering, you know, this octopus 
mind, this octopus intelligence is fascinating. And when on top of that, you're dealing with mental health issues for white Anglo-Saxon men, then I think it's a very safe bet, right? We had so many letters from so many men all over the world saying, we're so happy that Craig was so brave to talk about it. Even suicidal men wrote to us and said, this has really given me hope and I'm going to reconnect with nature and I'm, you know, I'm going to make myself healthy again. And I think that's a brilliant kind of backstory to to Water Bear, really, because I I mean, we are, I, I like to think that there's a, a chance for us all to reconnect with nature. It's part of our story at the moment. We, the world has kind of lost its way slightly and, and there's never been more, you know, mental health and and um you know stress-based kind of situations i guess for for many people uh depression etc and so this reconnection with nature is is a major part i feel of what water bear is kind of bringing although it's still you know very much technology and a screen etc it's one place where you can go to where you can uh, get access to fascinating um documentaries on biodiversity and nature and uh, our effects on the planet and it it really is quite thought-provoking so how did you go from that aha moment with uh my octopus teacher to 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 kind of the uh, bringing water bear about and can you give our listeners an insight into what water bear is while we were making my octopus teacher i thought how tiring it was to have to work for broadcasters and streamers that care about ratings and ad revenues and subscribers. Um, And I thought there are more important things than that. There's also our future on this planet. And I then thought, well, if we have our own platform, how on earth would we differentiate ourselves and not get, you know, swallowed up by this very big competition? And I thought the only way we can do that is A, if we're free. So Waterbury is a free a network that you can find on um, really online. So we're, we've got a website and you can find us on Google and of course in the app store. We're also on Roku and Apple TV um, and we're on Comcast in the United States on the Xfinity box now. And we are on Samsung uh, Fast TV in a couple of countries. So we're actually growing and you'll find Water Bear in an in, in increasing amount of places in the digital world. So that was one thing. We need to be free. We need to be available as an app, but also in a watch-only universe so that people can access us. The information we have in our films needs to be authentic. The films need to be educational, but inspirational. We, We don't really produce films that are, you know, scaremongering. I don't believe in that at all or accusatory. I think that you're right, Raphael, that in today's world, there is a huge amount of anxiety and depression, um, especially among young people. Uh, Water Bear targets mainly 18 to 35 year olds, even though we have an older audience as well, but our main audience is between 18 and 35. And I believe the thing that causes a lot of that anxiety and depression is that people feel disempowered because they're not getting genuine information. They're not getting authentic information. They're either getting fear mongering and lots of bad news, Mm -hmm. or they're getting a lot of nonsensical news. uh, And what I think uh, quite time wasting reality television and entertainment that is just not helpful. So um, that's why we built Water Bear to be the 
purposeful network that it is, we built the storytelling of Water Bear around the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which are 17 values, which, the, which all participating uh, UN nations have agreed upon. So I believe this is a set of values that is uh, agreed upon by 198 nations which is unbelievable and which is why I think we need to talk more about those values in our filmmaking uh, to, to, to get people to relate better to these values and to get people to understand this is what we deserve from our governments. This is what we must ask for. We have to ask for things like a more equal distribution of wealth. We have to ask for biodiversity, we have to ask for animal conservation, we've got to ask for ocean conservation, we have to ask for protection from pollution, uh, we have to ask for better legislation on plastics, we have to ask for better cities. I think that's what Water Bear is about. Um, and it's hugely fun to make these programs. And we also acquire lots of films that are about that. Yeah, and it's excellent. I've enjoyed watching, uh, you know, a few myself. There's some 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 very thought provoking things on there. There's some there's a different pace of you know a few different paced things. It's really it's a really nice place to to discover something different. Um, and how are you doing it? I mean, for for the entrepreneurs out there, they're going. Hold on, you're giving away free movies. How can how can this be a business? It's it's a great business because on the one hand, we are an impact business, which means we're a B Corp. We are almost mm -hmm. through our final qualification as a B Corp and our score is actually very high. I'm super proud of that. We work with 140 NGOs, all of whom are doing excellent work in the field. And a lot of our storytelling revolves around these wonderful things that these NGOs are doing to support the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And on the other hand, we have a sponsorship model where we work with uh, highly motivated and responsible brands Mm -hmm. uh, to uh, make films and uh, these sponsors are fantastic collaborators. So I'd like to mention Nikon, uh, the camera uh, brand, uh, fantastic work. They've just given a whole bunch of GoPros to people in the field working for 12 different NGOs. So we're really encouraging this uh, circle of filmmaking between NGOs, brands and Water Bear. Another fantastic brand is Natura & Co. Uh, they're the largest B Corp in the world. They own Aesop, uh, Avon, and Body Shop, and of course, their own brand, Natura. Mm -hmm. And we just signed a deal with uh, a fantastic outdoor clothing brand called Jack Wolfskin, and there will be more to come. So that's mm -hmm. our model. So, so these brands that, you know, they care about the environment, they care about um, some yeah. of the topics that Water Bear is covering, and they're kind yeah. of helping you guys to to bring these stories to everyone, so you know, to much, much bigger audience, I guess, because there's yes. a big difference between trying to convert someone on, on $5 or, um, a month or whatever it might be to free, yeah. free is free, and you can have that on your, your you know, Apple TV, as you say, or, or, or on your phone and just access it yeah. as you wish. And and one exactly. of the things I saw that was kind of cool is you're trying to connect action to, to some of the topics as well. So I watched yeah. a documentary called Milked and um, one of the calls to action there, you can sign the petition, which is you know, a nice way to kind of you, you watch something, if you care about it, you can also contribute in a small way towards uh, that topic. So you're tr that's kind of part and parcel of what you, you're trying to bring to, to bear here. That's right. We, we don't really want to glue people to our screen at Water Bear. 
Mm -hmm. We'd like people to bounce on and off of the screen. And what you can do, by the way, because we're interactive, is you can donate to all of the NGOs while you are watching. So you don't have to stop watching and then go to another website or anything. So you can keep watching and donate. And we're going to have a live function. You, you will be able to. I think you can do that now even. Um, there's a, we're going to start... Uh, working on bigger volunteer programs. So we want people to volunteer. We want people to share us on social media. We're quite big on social media already. So we'd like people to share our content on social media. And there will be lots more activations. So the types of things we do is events. We built a Loch Ness monster made of circular denim called the Messy Monster. And Messy <laughs> traveled around. She was on Grosvenor Square for a few weeks. Then she was at the Amsterdam Tropen Museum for a few weeks. She's going to be traveling around and we're activating people on circular economy. Uh, you're right to say that we do these big tentpole campaigns. So we showed, we premiered a, a film uh, called Milked on the the dairy industry in New Zealand, which is quite an eye opener. And we're trying to get people to be more conscious about how much, many dairy products they consume and what the price is of dairy to the planet. And we're going to do lots more. We just did a campaign in Europe on air pollution, uh, premiering a series called Europe's Biggest Lie. So it's a series making people aware that our governments do quite a bit of covering up on how bad our air quality really is. Um, we did an episode in London and we did an episode in uh, Amsterdam or in the Amsterdam area. So campaigns, activations, wanting people to really take charge also of causes they care about. They can become members of the NGOs that, that are on Water Bear that have their own bespoke page. Um, you can start your own campaigns, you know, if people want to start their own NGOs, we'd be super happy, but we would love to activate people uh, while they watch Water Bear. That is really our North Star. So how far do, does this go? I mean, do you see like collective action and things, things as, as part of your your mandate or, or some some topics are quite political, aren't they? And depending on where you are, it's, you know, it, it could be kind of um, exposing almost, you know, policies and things that that, that voters, um, you know, would, would have strong feelings about potentially. Yeah. So yeah. Where, where do you, where's the line on on these kind of things? And, and well, that's a really good question. We're we're not a political network, and our job is uh, storytelling. Our job is to raise awareness and to do activations that raise awareness. Uh, it's very unlikely that we would do anything, you know, acutely anti-government anywhere. It's not in our DNA. We're not a news network like Al Jazeera. We're 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 not a network like Extinction Rebellion. I think they're both amazing organizations, but you won't find that so much in our DNA as we're here to tell the stories, we're here to give the access. Uh, we do care a lot about biodiversity, climate change, circularity and community. And we think that we have to cut our cloth and say we are by nature communicators connectors and storytellers. And that is what we're gonna keep doing also via our activations. That said, when we uh, published our film, Europe, Europe's Biggest Lie, the Dutch uh, Children's Rights Envoy to the UN published a really large report and sent it into the UN to say, you really have to force governments 
to use WHO norms to regulate air pollution. So we can cause political action, we can cause policy change, and we have done so, but we're not going to be the active driver of that. Yeah, which is inspiring because it's not Netflix and chill and just sit there drinking a big gulp of whatever and yeah. <laughs> you get the no, chance to kind of, kind of think about stuff and, and, and do things that are, that are positive. Yeah. T- you touched on storytelling there. I mean, that in essence really is, you know, obviously your, your superpower uh, in, in what you've been doing, uh, creating productions and mm-hmm. um, connecting with people. How can, how can founders adopt your learnings from storytelling into positioning their own businesses, particularly impact businesses, because I think that the audience there is is a little bit more sometimes polarized. You've got a, a very niche number of people um, who are kind of looking at any specific problem that that maybe an, an entrepreneur addresses. But how yeah. do we get how do we get it mainstream? I guess the point of Waterbury is to bring these things to more of a bigger audience. But how can uh, yeah. how any tips for entrepreneurs on 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 bringing their own stories to bear? Yes, I think, uh, I think you need to find stakeholders. I think a very smart thing is to look at the principles of circular economy and try not to go it alone, right? This, this generation and this, I would say this era in entrepreneurship is not about competition. It's not about playing your cards close to your chest and trying to beat everybody else, right? It's no longer that. It is finding stakeholders, working with other related businesses, make your movement bigger, be more inclusive on all levels. And I think that's a a really important tip to give everybody. Thank you. Um, I I think it's very true. You're you're trying to find more more stakeholders, more people who who see the world a bit like you or believe in in what you're doing, certainly at an early stage. What's next for Waterbear? You've already signed up, I think you said 140 NGOs, which is pretty impressive. There can't be that many more out there for you. So is, uh, where, where would you like to take this? How do you see it? How do you see it uh, the years ahead? We're a tech company. So we're going to continue to improve our interactive technology. We would like to do lots more action. And the other thing is we're going to be pushing out into more territories. So we would like, currently we have a technical reach of 100 million people. And now we need to contact those 100 million people, right? So that means marketing, reaching, uh, more local activation, more subtitled versions of Water Bear. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a lot of work to do. I'm sure. And I look forward to tracking it. Um, Ellen, I just want to say thanks very much for, for joining us. And it's been a real pleasure to talk. Thanks so much, Raphael. It was lovely to speak to you. 